0: Welcome to Lives, a show exploring our experiences in the world and how we might live well. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and my guest today is Nancy Williams, CEO of No More Empty Pots. In today's show, Williams talks about establishing No More Empty Pots to support, educate, And to inspire communities about good food, its growth and distribution. She shares the roots of this passion, stretching back to her childhood in Louisiana, growing food with her family, winning a national Future Farmers of America competition, and studying the science of horticulture and agronomy.
1: When you look at what was available in the grocery stores in North Omaha, it did not compare to what was in the grocery stores in other parts of town. And in some cases, almost 30 years later, it is not much different.
0: Nancy Williams has had a diverse career from serving as an agronomist for local farmers and consultants in a Fortune 500 corporation to grassroots organizing and management for nonprofit community organizations. Williams was Chief Information Officer with Boys and Girls Clubs of the Midlands in Omaha. In 2010, she co founded, then in 2016, took on the CEO role at No More Empty Pots, a nonprofit supporting the development of local food systems through self sufficiency of people and economic resilience of communities. As well as all of these activities, Williams serves on multiple local, state, and regional boards and advisory committees. Nancy Williams, welcome to Lives.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: You were born and raised in Louisiana. How did food farming show
1: up in your early life? Uh, I grew up the oldest of six kids in a small town in rural Louisiana. And we grew most of the food that we ate. Being able to grow food after a certain time is second nature because that's literally how we survived. And, uh, both my grandparents would grow food. Our parents had all of these gardens. I thought that we were growing this food because they liked growing gardens. They were just reliving their childhood. I recently asked my mother about these gardens just a couple of years ago, because after a while, I'm wondering what part of this is just story and what part of this, like, why did this happen? I'm asking a lot of why questions now, as I recall things from childhood. And she said that she had all of these children and she wanted to make sure that we had good nutritious food to eat and it was expensive at the grocery store. So that is why we had all the gardens. It wasn't this novelty approach to rearing children and exposing us to good food, it was also out of necessity because food was expensive and it was not the quality that she wanted because she believed that nutrition was one of the most important things for our brain development in order for us to reach our full potential and excel in academics and in life. And My siblings and I have taken that with our children as well, because we also do the same thing. All of my kids know how to grow their own food. Some of them continue to grow their own food and all of them know how to prepare food for themselves. So that's how we got started is really for sustenance. And then I was in 4-H and FFA and competed on FFA contests and did that for a few years. Then I went to LSU and studied horticulture for a degree. And I could not believe that I was going to actually get a grade for growing food. Like I had a garden plot was a lab. It was the easiest A I ever had. It was like, okay. I I could not believe that was true.
0: What were your tasks as a kid? You know, you were the oldest of six. What what were you doing and what were each of the kids expected to do as, as farmers of this garden?
1: Oh, my goodness. So there's this image that I paint that I recall when I like have the summary of my time growing up. I remember at 10, I had calluses because I was hoeing out rows of sweet corn. Uh, we had six gardens at one time and there was only one near the house. So for a very long time, I'm not quite sure that I have actually gotten over this. But on Saturday mornings, for most of my adolescence, we'd be up and out of the house by seven o'clock in the morning, loading five gallon buckets of water on the back of a pickup. And only the little kids got to sit on the inside. We, uh, the older kids, were on the back sitting among five-gallon buckets of water and hoes and shovels and seeds and things like that. Because, I don't know, people didn't care. The kids weren't strapped in then. And then we'd go around town to these garden plots that our parents had, which, when I think about it now, none of them had water. The only place that had water was near our house. So that's why we had to carry these open five-gallon buckets of water around town to do this. But that's how... We got our food and in the summers we'd harvest and the one time you could get the air conditioner on is when you are processing the corn and the tomatoes and the peas and the bees and the okra because we didn't eat it all at once. We blanched it. We preserved it. It was usually put into pint sized bags and put in the freezer and the freezer was full and that's what we ate off of until spring spring. When the next crop was put into the ground and we started over.
0: Did you at any point think to yourself, this doesn't seem to be how other kids around us are living? Or was this pretty typical in your environment?
1: That seemed typical for an environment. Not all the kids did that kind of work, but some of the kids did. But there were adults in households and families, intergenerational groups doing it. Our family, because we, where we grew up, our parents built a house on land that was owned by my dad's mom's parents. And my dad's parents also had a house that wasn't far from us that was a part of that same property. And then my dad's mom's mom also, they had a house that was near. So it's like this triangle and it was this big lot and pasture and garden space in between and everybody had gardens we had fruit trees the neighbors had fruit trees that was just how we grew up i didn't realize until i gone away to college that other people did not live this way all the way and all the time and then it was when we had our children in omaha I came to one of the biggest differences between our kids and other kids was the food that they ate. And when you look at what was available in the grocery stores in North Omaha, it did not compare to what was in the grocery stores in other parts of town. And in some cases, almost 30 years later, it is not much different. And I knew that parents of my kids' friends wanted the same thing for them. And they were going through all of the effort to make sure they had access to things in school, after school, extracurricular activities. But the diet and what they consumed was different. I cooked from scratch most of the time. I knew what good produce looked like and I refused to spend money on what was available in the store. So I would go to farmer's markets. We would grow some ourselves in community gardens. Or uh, now I get a CSA because that's, that's an easier way for me to get it. But the the biggest difference was the food they ate and the nutrition.
0: For you, what was four H and and you know what was FFA? What are they and what what were you doing?
1: Oh my goodness! So my mother's mother was an 1890 extension aide with cooperative extension. So in the system of colleges and universities, you have uh, 1862, you have 1890, and you have 1994. The 1862s are the land grants like LSU and UNL, predominantly white state colleges, universities. The 1890s are the historically black ones like Southern University, Lincoln University. Those are the ones where, because of segregation predominantly black populations would go to get education. And so my grandmother was an extension aid through Southern university in the parish, because we don't have counties in Louisiana in the parish where we grew up. And so Part of her job was to round kids up and get them involved in activities around growing food, sewing, all the things you do in 4-H is all around self-sufficiency. I didn't know that at the time it was just fun stuff to do, but we used to do like macrame. Uh, We had sewing contests. We had grilling contests, lots of different things. And we learned about, at least I did And the parts that I did, I I like the plant parts, where the Junior horticultural Society, we would learn about different plants. And entomology, we learned about bugs and there's competitions for those and I love winning. I love learning and I love winning, so I signed up for all of those things.
0: And I think you were pretty successful, if I understand this correctly. You were really good in 4-H and also really good in Future Farmers of America. What, what were those competitions like and, and what was it, uh, as it were, the pinnacle of your success? <laughs>
1: Oh my goodness. The main thing is showing up and being consistent as I've learned over these years is true for almost everything, but sticking with it. Um, once you decide that you're going to do something, uh, with 4-H you have, I don't know if they still do it, but we used to do record books. So you document all of the things that you did over this period of time and you have Photos and you have the artifacts that you collected along the way. And then you'd submit that record book as part of the testament of what you've learned and your growth or in the outcomes of being involved in that. And then you could get prizes and awards for that scholarships, depending on at what level you were submitting this and at what time in your tenure in 4 H. It was a lot of exposure to a non-academic way of learning and putting those things into action because you'd learn about how to grow things and the different types of vegetables, but then you would have like a square foot garden. We had a square foot garden bed, raised bed at our house. Even with all these gardens going on where we are using it for sustenance, the project was a square foot garden. So our parents helped us put together a square foot garden and we sectioned it off with the strings because that's the process and you follow the process. And we grew things within the little sections and they were things that we chose that our parents didn't choose that we got to grow because we wanted them and we wanted to see what it was like. So it was like carrots and radishes and stuff. Our parents did not have that in the big garden. The big garden had tomatoes and okras uh, and peas and beans and corn and things like that. We had the cute stuff that we could (laughs) that we could eat and do salads and stuff with, and it it made a difference in how we could be active, learn in different way, but also engage community because there was always like a group component, and it was a mentoring component to it because you had 4-H agents is what they would call them, and I got a call from a 4-H agent from 1978 just a few weeks ago and she still keeps in touch. And she moved from our parish 4-H office to a state position at LSU and started a collegiate 4-H chapter. And so I was in 4-H for four years in college after I was in 4-H from fourth grade to 12th grade when I was growing up and going to, to regular school.
0: What took you to horticulture and the academic field of study? So
1: in FFA, at the time, they called it Future Farmers of America. I don't know that they still ascribe to Future Farmers of America. I think they just want to have it as FFA now. But I still think of it as Future Farmers of America. And I still have my old jackets uh, that my daughters now wear as like vintage wear from the 80s. (laughs) But I was in at the school where I was at, to be um, in FFA, you also took vocational agriculture classes. So um, because the ag teacher was the FFA uh, sponsor. So the things that you learned in class also supported the things that you would be doing for the FFA contest. They're very efficient uh, and effective in that way because what they were teaching in class, they could reinforce in the competition side. And it helps to see things in a different way and there's a different motivation for learning and becoming more competent and masterful about the content. It was a brilliant way to do it now being in my 50s and looking back on how the uh, the teacher was Mr. Knighton did that. And it's something that I think if we did more of that, we'd have more kids being able to connect to what they truly love because they would have mentors that could see that spark in them when they don't know how to identify it themselves. I had no idea that I was going to go into horticulture. That was not, it probably wasn't even in my top 10. What I knew was that I wanted to go to school. I wanted someone else to pay for it. I was tired of babysitting. I did not want to miss Saturday morning cartoons in the garden anymore. (laughs) And I wanted to do something that was challenging and encouraged my curiosity. I had expected to become a double postdoc studying science in something, but I, because I didn't really want to go to work, work. I just want to keep learning stuff and have fun. And I thought being a double postdoc would like get me as far as I could go before someone say, okay, now you got to go get a real job. But Mr. Knighton got me involved in, FFA studying for what they call the plant team was really the nursery landscape contest. And they were very serious. His wife, uh Joanne Knight, and she just passed away this earlier this month. And she was the, the biology botany teacher. And he was the VOAG teacher. But when it came to studying and preparing for competition for the nursery landscape team, they would literally take us, go out to the nurseries around the state, pick up the plants that were a part of the list that you had to learn for competition, set up a shade house in their backyard, and we had access to those plants year round. And depending on where we were in competition time, we'd study in the summer and we'd study after school. And I learned that summer of between eighth grade and ninth grade that academics had a certain allure because I could get out of chores and study. Instead, sign me up. What else are we going to learn and compete about? And so that's how I became a part of the nursery landscape team and started doing that. And we competed the first year. We only made it to state state. And there was some controversy around that because it's Louisiana and it was still segregated somewhat at that time. But we took what they gave us and said, OK, next year we'll be ready. And so the next year we did the, lo- the local competition, area competition, state competition, won all of those handsomely where there could be no question. There's whatever subjectivity you come up with. That's cool, but we got enough objective stuff that there is no question that we are the winning team. We will be representing Louisiana in the national competition. So, uh, the national competition was always in Kansas City at that time. And Mr. Knighton had this thing where he would play, uh, Fats Domino going to Kansas City when right before we would start our study sessions as this way to like, you know, get us hyped and ready to learn the material that we need to learn. He had a former student who was studying for a PhD at Iowa State University, put together these tests, uh, multiple choice, true false tests based on the material that uh, was selected for the competition. So we had the written component. We had the plant identification component. We learned how to identify plants so well that you could give us a twig, a deciduous plant in dormant state with no leaves and only a couple of buds. And we could say what plant that was. They were serious about competition. And we ended up competing. It was 1984. I was in 10th grade. We went to Kansas City. We represented Louisiana. Our team, I believe, got third overall. And we had three people competing um, my sister uh, next to me, a year younger than me, was an alternate on the team. And I think we had one person that got like 21st place, maybe 10th place. This was 1984, is a long time ago. So I don't remember exact, <laughs> the exact things, but I, I think around that. And when they got down to like the top five, I remember Mrs. Knighton. Mrs. Knight looks at me and goes, because my middle name is Diane, because my mother's name is Nancy. And she turned around and she said, Di, what happened? And she had this look of horror on her face, like, how could you not be in the top five? And I was like, I don't know. I thought I did pretty good. And then they got down to the last person. And the the gentleman that is announcing the awards, and he said, and first place, you know who you are because you corrected us on this plant. They had misidentified a plant. And when we were going back around checking, I was like, no, that is not the correct answer. It is this. And then they checked it and they had to change their key because their key was incorrect. And so he made that announcement and I got first place out of all of those. But when they said you know who you are. And they call my name, uh, my maiden name, uh, Diane Weber. I looked at Mrs. Knighton and I said, I was responding to her because it wasn't that much time between her saying what happened. I said nothing. And I backed my seat out and went up. But at that time, it was the first time that I heard someone call me the N-word. And there was a group of kids at another table and I can't remember what state they were from. They, uh, there was a comment that it was like, Oh, that's an N word. And I was like, Okay, but I just won first place, so I'm going to get this big-ass trophy. And so I went up on the stage, held the trophy, and the trophy is still at the Knighton's house. I need to find out. Somehow it ended up leaving my parents' house and went to their house, and it's still there. But that that is how I ended up competing and in, in being in an FFA uh, because Mr. Knighton won a first place win. And he had talked to my parents about being on this team because he thought that this was a way to get there. And in 10th grade, we did it. And once you win a national competition, they don't allow you to compete anymore. And so I was like, OK, so what am I going to do now? <laughs> that was the bulk of my extracurricular time. So I just did school stuff and was in VOAG and was the president of the our chapter and did stuff there. In VOAG, I did welding and carpentry and plumbing and electricity and all of that stuff. I loved ripping when you're doing carpentry and you have to cut the wood. I love uh, ripping those studs and doing oxyacetylene welding and things like that.
0: Where does the science aspect come in? What was it that drew you to IT and computing?
1: The science part came in because the science classes were the most interesting to me in high school. We had a fantastic science teacher, Mr. Shane Bordelon, taught chemistry and physics. And I remember I was sitting in physics class when I came up with a double postdoc idea. <laughs> uh, and Mrs. Knighton was our biology and science teacher. And you got a chance to go in the lab and you got to create things and make stuff that was the most fun. So that's why I loved science. It was the most challenging and most interesting. FFA was, and vocational agriculture was like the applied part of that because it's not just to learn it, but how do you show what you've learned? How do you make it meaningful was the vocation of it to me. And it was Mr. Knighton who had made calls to people at LSU in a horticulture department. I was out running labs for... P.E. one morning and Mr. Knighton called me into the office because he had one of the professors from LSU on the phone to talk to me. And I thought I'm just talking to some dude, but it was more like an interview <laughs> for horticultural horticulture scholarship. And so I ended up getting scholarships to cover the cost of school. And I thought that I wanted to go into medicine, but I really don't like fluids from people. Plants. Much better option. And so he said, "Take the scholarship. you have most general education classes the first two years, and then if you decide that you want to switch to medicine, then you do that. But it was like my place. It was the place where I understood it. I had been in it for so long. I had a practical experience. So it wasn't just that I had an interest in in growing plants. But I had this experience of growing plants and knowing the difference that it makes for a family, for a household, for a community. And then I get to do, I get to learn the science behind that application. And then I had the opportunity to do research. My Heart 2050 professor allowed me to do a research project and I earned a fellowship to Cornell to study plant pathology and weed science. I had an interest in biological control. And so my study at Cornell was the biological control of annual bluegrass on golf courses using a bacterium, Xanthomonas campestris, because it's a facultative parasite. You need a wound. And it was on a golf course. They're always cutting grass, so it was natural. And the annual bluegrass produces seed heads that interrupt the roll of the ball. So they spray a lot of chemicals on the golf course to control it so that you can have a smooth play. But if you can find a naturally occurring organism that you can artificially increase that does not have a negative effect on the environment, but also reduces a pesticide load that does have a negative effect on the environment, there's a net positive for the ecosystem. And so that's what I was studying in graduate school.
0: And then from there into computing?
1: So the computer part came in when I was taking a microcomputer class <laughs> at. LSU in 10th grade because I needed something different to take. And my parents didn't have to pay for school for me because I had scholarships. So they gave me twelve hundred dollars to buy a computer with a whopping three hundred and eighty six K of memory. <laughs> and I took my own money from like summer jobs and student worker pay to get a dot matrix printer that had the little um, the little rings on the side with the, the paper with the holes in it where you rolled. Yes. And I never did my assignments on time. So I'm always at four o'clock in the morning printing out my reports, probably to the chagrin of my roommate who is all of like three feet away.
0: <laughs> what was the genesis of No More Empty Pots? It really came from
1: a coworker and I were working at Boys and Girls Club and there was an announcement about a grant to support something in North Omaha, millions of dollars. And her response was, I'm tired of seeing this happen. People get money for our community and nothing ever changes as a result of it. And I was like, okay, so what you want to do about it? Cause I'm like that. It was like, don't just be talking about it. What are you going to do about it? She was like, well, let's go write down some things. I was like, okay, I have PTO to give. I never took all my time. And so we took two days off from work and we wrote down uh, almost like a SWAT. Like what are the opportunities what are the assets available, what are the resources, what are the needs. That was in August of 2009. We started sharing that with people and more people kept getting interested in it. I think it was November or December of 2009, Brian Smith, uh, used to own Black Sheep Farms, said that we should do a food summit. And so we got some people together and we had a food summit of February of 2010. And We had about 50 people show up Two initiatives came out of that day long engagement. It was that family housing advisory service at 24th and Lake, and that was to support urban agriculture and being able to grow food within city limits for personal consumption and for sale, because that was not an allowed thing. They just passed the ordinance this year to allow all this stuff this year, 13 years. It just happened. We took those and just started meeting with whomever wanted to meet after that once a month in the library, other people's offices. Our intention was not to be a nonprofit. We were just a group of people who were interested in seeing who was doing great work, supporting them and helping all of us do our best work so that we had the community that we wanted and we had the outcomes that we wanted for ourselves and our kids. That was it. But people kept asking us to do things that we couldn't maintain as this ad hoc volunteer group. And so we got a small grant from AIM Institute. It was $20,000. We hired Susan Whitfield, who I met at Boys and Girls Club. And so she came on as a project manager. And so there was so much interest. We had a second summit in November of 2010. And we took part of that, that $20,000 and commissioned a report on local foods because that seemed to be like an opportunity to address the food insecurity as a systems initiative. Because there are a lot of different components that go into how we get to eat what we eat. And those of us who don't have it, there are many forces that influence that. We learned that there is a $4 billion fresh food market in Nebraska, and not even 10% of that was local. But there's much more happening now around local foods and recognizing the power in supporting people and communities to become more self-sufficient and economically resilient. We decided to submit for our 501c3 and six weeks later, we got the response from the IRS that it was awarded. And I was like, okay, I guess we're doing this now. And then we've started the work as a 501c3, doing the same things we were doing before, engaging community, mapping the gaps, seeing where we have strengths, filling in those gaps where we saw there is a need and we needed that to get to the next step, but also supporting people who were doing great work Our intention is that we all get to work to our strengths. That way it doesn't feel so arduous. And the people that we're working with in the community get the best of us. And they get a chance to be a part of it so that we are co-creating this together.
0: What is the organization uh, doing to breathe life into the ideas that you've been sharing?
1: So we take the systems approach and over from 2010 to 2013, we had this series of iterative test. Now I can say that it is similar to the scientific process method. You have an hypothesis, you have a way to test the hypothesis, you take the conclusion and you try it again. And so we take this approach to all the things that we do enough to push it to learn, but hopefully not enough that we break it or destroy it completely but also enough information to know whether we need to not do it anymore because that is also important. In 2013, we settled on, not everybody understands how this all works. There are people in each sector that don't understand how the things they do affect the other people, the end users or other people that are in this value chain that gets to the end user. So education was is our First value, we have stewardship and sustainability, but we also figured that we wanted to use, we wanted to develop a food hub as a physical space where people could experience the sectors of the food system. Production, processing, consumption, distribution, and recycling. And it could also be a place where we could test the idea. So if we change this in production, how does this affect distribution? If we change this in processing, how does it change consumption? If we extract the waste from the distribution part, can we reintroduce that as added value that centers people so that the people who are working within the system get more of the value And everybody ends up getting more of what they need instead of discounting the labor in certain parts of the system to allow for other parts of the system to flourish. It is trying to find this balance where everybody and every actor is a part of this ecosystem is balanced in a way that there's a give and take. It's not even, but it's equitable and we can find the equilibrium where what we put into it uh, yields a much greater
0: outcome. How did the pandemic shift your thinking around food, its distribution, its consumption, um, its sustainability, just how we think about that as a, as a community?
1: When we first built the hub, we purchased the buildings in 2014. We finished phase one of construction in 2016, phase two of construction in June of 2019. So the whole thing wasn't done until 2019. And we knew that we were building this as a responsive community tool. We weren't quite sure how that was going to manifest, but we got time. It took lo- this long to build a building. Let's see what we can do with it. And then in March of 2020, we closed everything <laughs> in response to the pandemic. And very quickly, there is this food scarcity For many more people than the food that the people who are already food insecure. And we saw an opportunity because farmers had food. We still had staff and students and a whole bunch of volunteers and connections to people in culinary and hospitality. And we had a refrigerated truck. But more importantly, we had partners who cared about logistics. And who had available capacity to do distribution. And so we started like the third week in March doing distribution of meals because we were already doing these programs. So this just allowed us to scale it because we couldn't do community education at the same level anymore. The things that we were doing that required us to gather and be with people, those things went down. And so when you look at the system like One part goes way down on one side, but what to balance this out is now we have this capacity where we can support this need around food. And so we started preparing more meals because there's also people getting sick and they don't have the strength or the capacity or the space to even make the food. And by August of 2020, we were making and distributing 3000 meals a week. Uh, So we had a 10x increase from March to August. And in those those first five months, I have partners in Whispering Roots and Together Inc. and NCAP, Simple Foundation, Intercultural Senior Center, where they took on some of the distribution. We could focus on scaling up. That was our strength. We had the building. We had the access to the food from the farmers. We had the staff and the volunteers. We focused on scaling up food production and they focused on distribution. By August, like we settled into a different routine because it wasn't changing much. And so they had to shift their attention. We started doing our own distribution. But I was very encouraged by what happened in such a short period of time. To me, it was the test that proved that the space works as a responsive community tool because we had a shift in the need and we were able to pivot and respond to the need.
0: And many people who drive along 30th Street past the Highlander campus will have seen the mammoth greenhouse that's sitting uh, as part of that campus. Yes. What are you doing there?
1: So that facility was constructed and then in 2018, they stopped renovating it, building it out. In 2021, Sydney Franklin, the CEO at 75 North approached me and asked if we would be interested in developing that space. And I was like, girl we are trying to get out of the pandemic. I do not have the energy for this. And I don't raise money for things that don't show up on my balance sheet. This is your building. And she offered, well, what if we did the fundraising? I was like, ah, so if you do the fundraising, we'll bring the programming. And I thought it was going to be a long time. It's like, take that challenge, go do what you will. I have other things to do. But in six months, she came back with $5 million. And I was like, Now I got to tell them that we got to figure out what to do with this space. And so we had a a joint meeting of our teams and we started mapping out what does it look like for us to collaborate? What is the community asking for? Uh, What are the strengths that we have to meet that request and that need? And then who are the partners and, and collaborators that could Help us do that. And we reimagined how that space would be used to have all of that happen. And so we have the two greenhouses on the upper level that we will have different types of growing media so people can learn how to grow in traditional soil uh, with soil benches, but we'll also have vertical grow spaces and hydroponic units in there so that Folks who are learning how to grow can learn how to grow anything, anywhere. And we also learn how to optimize the space for what can grow well. And based on that, we will grow food that can be distributed and sold from the micro market that will be in the space. But also share with others, uh, other entrepreneurs who want to scale up and grow food and may have access to a greenhouse or who want to build one. This is what works And these conditions for this type of structure in this space so that we are sharing that information to build capacity for other folks and the community. On the mezzanine level, there will be a science lab with three working stations. So we get back to science. And we are very fortunate to have uh, the Clara M. Hubbard Foundation to support that space and also uh, support paid internships for high school students. Who are interested in science, especially a natural science pathway for post secondary uh, study and for careers. And we'll have working scientists as mentors to support them to learn about the space and also guide them so that they can go from this place of high interest, engagement and exploration to, to get to this point of Excellence and uh, professionalism, and being able to realize those dreams. One of the things that I heard in twenty early twenty twenty two was there are not a lot of BIPOC scientists. Can't find them, and I have been in a room with about four hundred of them. So I know that people are not looking if they say they can't find them. Go to Manners M A N N R S is based in Atlanta. From high school through postgraduate, they got a wide gamut, hundreds of folks that you can tap. But I also wanted students and kids in our community to know that this is a possibility and have the resources and support to make that true for them. So that we won't have people saying, I don't know any BIPOC scientists, or they're hard to find, or we we can't cultivate that because they are here, they have the interest, We have the resources, and now we're pulling together this community of folks who want to support this so that there is a more formalized opportunity for them. We'll also have another kitchen, like we have at the Food Hub, for training prenatal through seniors and uh, renting the kitchen to entrepreneurs, a classroom, office space, and on the lower level, all of our aggregation and distribution that we're doing at the Food Hub on Florence, we're moving over to. Uh, the Highlander accelerator space because we'll have three times as much storage. And we have dedicated space for packaging and distribution. And we can also support entrepreneurs in that packaging and distribution. And we can aggregate from more farmers in Nebraska and Iowa by pulling that in. And the 400 square foot micro market will take all types of payment, snap, wick, cash, card, everything. And we will sell what we're growing in the greenhouse And we are selling all of the food that we're aggregating from farmers locally as well.
0: You clearly have a long (laughs) and a deep connection to the earth, to what emerges from the earth, to the natural world, And, and the science that goes behind a lot of that. And given how apparent that is, I wonder how you feel about some personal sense of meaning or spirituality or some philosophical connection with a question like, what's it all about for you? What What is your life about?
1: That is a great question, Stuart. Uh, I have been on a different journey probably past six, seven years. One, because my kid's or out of the house, they're all fully adults and doing their own things. Now going from working at boys and girls club to going into the position with no more empty pots. Cause we founded it in 2010. I already had a job. I wasn't looking for a job, but we got to the point where we needed an ed and I shared that with the board It's like, we can't operate like this anymore. And they asked, well, why don't you do? It? And it's like, cause I have a job. I work many hours at that job. I'm good with that. But they encouraged me that with the way that I see things in the background that I have, that I am suited for that. So for the technical and practical information about growing food and systems and science, yes. Leading people, no, I had no idea, no idea what this was going to be like. Had I known, I would have definitely said no, because I did not understand That this was part of my growth journey. But it has been the thing that helped me become a more aware of who I am and get closer to accepting why I'm here, even if I don't fully understand and know what that is. Because I don't quite know what it is, but I'm okay with not knowing. I used to want to know. Now I'm learning to be present. I learned that I could not lead until I could be vulnerable. I could not be vulnerable until I could feel. And I spent almost like 30 years numb because that was the safest way for me to exist and get my checklist done. It is very easy for me to get things done to achieve if I don't have feelings and emotions and I have to deal with all the other things. But when you start feeling like that productivity for me went down a lot because I had to see things differently. I had to interact with it differently. I was so disconnected from feelings and emotions that literally last year I bought Brene Brown's Atlas of the Heart. And I was Googling what searching like what I'm feeling to get a name and then go to the book. And look at, oh, that's what that is. And that's how I got there. It's been a journey. I meditate. I've been meditating. I probably, I think I might have only missed like 60 days overall since 2019. It is one of the things that keeps me as centered as I am. Because I'm still human. I am wild sometimes. It is being in this position has helped me. It's hard to fundraise if you're not present with people. You got to be with them. You got to know what makes their eyes light up. And it's the same thing as when they want to get involved in a a project or if they want to be a participant. Everybody wants to be seen and heard and valued. You can't do that if you're not aware enough to be present and be with them. So I've been working through all of these things intently. One, I started because I needed to do my job. Otherwise, I was going to be out of here. It's overwhelming. I couldn't do it. There's lots of prayers. There's dreams. There's this trilogy with Oprah in it. I'll tell you about it sometime. It's a whole bunch of stuff. But I've gotten to this place where I celebrate the moment. I'm trying to be just in what we have is right now. Yesterday, the moment before is a lesson. What's coming is an idea. It's not here yet. But what what we have is like right in front of us. And I try to just be present and be in that moment. And I've learned that for me, joy and fear sit in the same place. And if I allow myself to experience joy, then there's not as much room for fear. And then when I allow myself to feel the feelings in the moment, I can feel whatever it is and then get back to joy. Because part of it for me is just being present and being grateful for the moment, whatever that moment is bringing, because I get to experience it.
0: Do you think being present, more mindfully present in the current moment, has helped you be a better scientist, a better gardener, a better person who is connected to growing? plants and food in in the earth
1: i think it's helped me to be a better human to accept that i am a being that is inhabiting this body that gets to experience nature and gardening and plants Cause I don't garden as much. I have some plants now because I buy food from local farmers. They do a great job at it. I'm not going to be doing all that. I'd rather prepare the food and eat it and share it with people, but it's really helped me to like be a better me. My children have told me that I listen better now. Like I'm a better parent. We have a much closer and better relationship now. And I try not to use like. Judgmental terms, like it is what it is. So it's not good or bad, it is. So I won't say better, but I would say it's closer. We express love and joy being with each other, and we are with each other a lot more. And because of that, there is this ripple effect from all the people that are around them. My oldest kid is 31 and regularly, probably at least once a month or every other month, people thank me for giving birth to him which is wild, the people who connect with my kids and they tell me that they feel blessed by knowing them and our family. And I would say that that is the testament to me becoming more of myself and getting closer to and listening and accepting the things that I don't do well, because I'm also a human on this journey of becoming and then accepting and giving myself that grace and compassion because that's hard for me, but I'm getting better at it. And I notice that as I embrace that more, that more of the things that I love come to me and the things that I have to go through, the lessons as we go through these layers of uncovering the things that we've tried to bury That there is also joy in that because the revelation of it brings another level of awareness. And for me, uh, in being curious and learning, it's like going to the next level of the game. And every time you think you're about to win the game, it's like, oh, it's like, no, it's just another level. The game just continues to go and you continue to iterate on the hypothesis. You iterate on the process You use the results and conclusions in different ways because you become, at least for me, I become more curious about different things. It's not so much the mechanics of it, but it is the connectedness of it to me. And how do we as beings coexist so that all of us, the inanimate ones that have organic matter that we don't consider alive because they don't communicate the way that we do. How does meditating and being present bring me closer to that core of being that connects me to everything else? Because if energy is neither created nor destroyed and it's all the same, then all of all of this is just coming. It's had a previous existence in some way
0: the guest today has been Nancy Williams CEO of No More Empty Pots Nancy thanks so much for the conversation
1: thanks for having me
0: Lives is brought to you on KIOS Omaha Public Radio and is produced by Courtney Beerman the music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well. Thanks for listening.